if you go down to, say, San Francisco, anywhere within an hour and a half of the city is just drastically expensive, um, drastically overpriced. But in Seattle, you can still go out, you know, 35 minutes and find something that's, that's reasonable in some areas. Well, hello, and welcome to today's episode of Invest in the West, where we talk about investing strategies and real estate-related topics in the Western United States. I'm Nicholas Cook, and I'm here with my co-host, Matt Williams. Our guest today is Devin Easterlin with SJA Property Management in Seattle, Washington. Devin, thanks for being here with us. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe how you got into you know property management and brokerage? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. So... Like you mentioned, um, I'm the CEO of SJA Property Management, which I started with a couple other partners about 11 years ago. We also own Sterling Johnston Real Estate, which does uh, residential and commercial brokering. We better have about 100 brokers on that side of the business. Um, got into it about 12, 12 years ago around there. Um, I do some investing myself. We manage about 600 properties or so on the PM side of things, uh, born and raised in the Seattle area, just a little bit outside in Kirkland, mm-hmm. um, went away for school for a while, um, have a little bit of a, I have a legal legal background, so I was an attorney for a little while there and I keep my license current, um, but I don't practice, um, but I do use some of those skills in the, just the running of the two businesses and the investing that we do. Awesome. So, I mean, obviously you went to law school, that probably wasn't cheap. And uh, now you're, you know, you're a licensed broker. How did you end up in property management specifically? Uh, you know, like everybody, I fell into it backwards, right? Kicking and screaming. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we started out and I was uh, working for a small firm in Seattle. And I knew that it wasn't a long term fit for me just with my personality strengths and things that I was good at and things that I wasn't at. And so with my with my good friend of mine, uh, we started a real estate company and we were going to do investing in real estate, which we did. This was in 2008 or so. So things were good. Um, and we <laughs> also got our real estate licenses so we could uh, buy property. And then we started just representing friends. This is the time when everybody was getting out of college. They, many people were buying their first homes because the market was so hot. And so we just started representing them and doing real estate investing on the side. Um, then the market started to crash and um, we needed to figure out some way to generate income. So we started um, doing property management. We started taking those people that couldn't sell their properties, um, you know, maybe they were moving out of state for tech, whatever it was, they couldn't sell their properties. So uh, we would come in and manage them for them and we started getting you know, a few a month and it just started slowly over time, um, building up to where that was a big leg of our business. Great. Great. Well, um, as you may know, um, a lot of the people who are listening, you know, are either already investing or want to invest in the Western United States. Um, obviously that's a pretty big region. It makes up a lot of different States. Um, maybe you can tell us, you know, a little bit about what the housing stock is like where you are, whether it's new, kind of older housing stock, a mixture, just maybe you can just tell us a little bit about what people can expect in that marketplace. Sure. So Washington is an interesting place. You have, I think it's probably similar to a lot of states where you have your your main cities 
where um, things are fairly expensive. But if you go out to the outskirts, you can find some pretty good deals, things like that. Um, in Seattle, you're going to deal primarily with older homes. So these are your smaller, um, you know, maybe a rambler with a basement type of situation. You can, you're going to deal with older fourplexes, older multifamily, unless you're getting into the big stuff that they're building. But for the investor like myself that dabbles in single family and small multifamily buildings, it's primarily older stuff. When you say older, do you want to give us kind of a definition of kind of what range of housing stock you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, you can go really old. And by that, I mean, you know, 1920s, 1925, something like that. Primarily, you're going to see stuff in Seattle, you know, in the 60s, 60s, 70s. Um, that's when they were doing a lot of building there. And they, they all look fairly similar. You know, they might be between 1,100 and 1,600 square feet in a lot of areas um, for your single family stuff. And then the multifamily that gets a, you're going to get into a, a little bit, a little bit older or excuse me, uh, newer. So those would be, you'll see a lot of stuff in the sixties, seventies around there. Um, just that's in Seattle core and, and Ballard, the surrounding areas of Seattle. Um, when you move out of the city into places like Tacoma, um, Federal Way, things like that. You'll start to see newer, newer properties, and you can get things in the '80s, '90s for sure. Can you maybe give us a little idea of like how vacancy rates are are going like in that area? I mean, obviously that's always a moving target, but what are, what are the, what's the general sense? What could people expect? Yeah, I mean that's that's one of the beneficial things. So there's a lot of things that make investing in the Seattle area challenging, um, but the allure is we have such a strong growth. Um, in terms of job growth in the industry around here. It's, it's a booming city. It's one of the fastest growing cities and has been for a long time. So vacancy is always hovering, at least in the past, I don't know, eight years or so. It's been, you know, under 4% or thereabouts. So wow. last, time I, yeah, last time I checked, we were around 2.2% uh, in the city. Um, that changes and that's an approximate, you know, I get my information from the MLS and re different reports, but, um, sure. it's, it's really low. So, um, even though there was a, it bumped up a little bit. So Seattle had, and still does to some degree, they were just building units because we had this pent up demand. And so they just, the builders and, and investors just went crazy and started building all these units. And it took a while for the market to exhaust that supply. And that was, it was a little blip in there, but it still was in the forest. I mean, it was not nothing that, uh, I mean, in a lot of markets, that'd be amazing. So, but now we've even come down, come down from that. Hey, Devin, uh, thanks very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Um, we obviously have some perspective on the Portland market here in Oregon and, you know, obviously in Vancouver, just on the other side. So I'm duly licensed. I've actually have a somewhat of a similar uh, background as you do in that I started in real estate not an attorney, obviously, but um, started in real estate and then kind of fell into property management when a lot of my clients and uh, investor clients especially couldn't sell their flips or couldn't sell the home that they were in. Um, and so since then, since that, you know, fallout um, in, you know, seven through 11, um, we've seen a lot of uh, rent growth, obviously, and that's made us a little bit of a target um, in general. Seattle's kind of experienced that as well. Um, obviously, there's the keyword and buzzword in a lot of communities here 
on the West Coast is a housing crisis, right? So tell us a little bit, if you could, about rent growth and kind of what's been happening there as far as um, what investors have experienced uh, as they've come out of the recession and been building equity in those homes while also building, building rents uh, and incre- increasing housing supply. Yeah, I would say that's you know one of the big allures to these markets is that it has been such strong rent growth over the past you know eight years. Um, it's on everybody's radar now, like you mentioned. So we are landlords are a target because they feel as though the strong rent growth is pricing out a lot of people and a lot of communities within the city. Um, they also portray it as it may be. Um, exacerbating the homeless crisis that we have in Seattle right now. So um, I think last year we were up about 3%, but that over the course of, you know, we'd have to double check this, but over the course of, you know, six years, I mean, that's been going up five, six, eight percent yearly. So it's, it's a, a little bit of a slower year um, than maybe the average over the past eight years, but it's definitely um, really strong. Um, and it's it, it truly is pricing a lot of a lot of people out of housing, um, but it's good for investors that have were able to get in. Yeah, you know, it, it seems like there's always that balance, right? Where you're just trying to, you know, you have a growing city, you've got areas that are, um, you know, under acknowledged. I'll say you have a lot of people moving from other metropolitans that are higher, and it seems as though um, that draw for Portland, at least, has been you know, that we have a lot of the same amenities. And, and I think really when you kind of look at it, uh, Seattle, San Francisco, um, and Portland are similar in that you've got access to water, mountains, the, the beach within a couple hours of everywhere you go. And Portland and Seattle were kind of underpriced in that regard. Is that kind of what you've experienced up there? Yeah, it seems like that. I mean, when you, when you look at it, we kind of in the Seattle area, it always thinks we kind of follow California, specifically San Francisco. So things that happen there, then they trickle over into the Northwest, you know, maybe about a six month leg or something like that. But yeah, Seattle seems to be a, because we do have so much tech industry and strong companies here, you know, with a vibrant economy, you know, rents are going to go up. So, you know, that's a a double edged sword for for some segments of, of, of the populace, because it does bring a lot of people's salaries up. It, it attracts talent. Um, but with the tech sector, those people can afford a lot more, which drives rent up. Um, Seattle is, I know, uh, several people in tech. Um, and this is a very, because it was lower prices than other places where they could set up shop and where they could move to Seattle was really, um, it was an advantageous move for them to come here. Now it's starting to catch up a little bit in a lot of areas, but there's still, you know, I mean, if you go down to say San Francisco, anywhere within an hour and a half of the city is just drastically expensive, um, drastically overpriced. But in Seattle, you can still go out, you know, 35 minutes and find something that's, that's reasonable in some areas. You know, that certainly makes sense. I think that that's probably a driving force, um, you know, in many cities and, and where people are kind of looking in different areas, especially um, if they've been in, investing in some of those higher end areas and they've got a little bit of money to put into uh, an economy someplace. And one of the things that you mentioned was, was job growth. And another um, opportunity, I think, I know a lot of people here look at taxes, right? I mean, and in Washington, 
uh, on the state income tax. That's a benefit that many people have in living in Vancouver, just over the border. So if they cross a bridge, and if they were working in Washington as opposed to Oregon, you know, they save 9%. So that's a pretty significant benefit. There's a lot of regulatory restrictions, uh, and, and that seems to be happening along the West Coast. How would you describe the regulatory environment for investors in Washington? You know, Washington as a whole, I would say um, it would be moderate to leaning on leaning tenant facing. However, if you go to places like Seattle, a couple other cities, Tacoma, um, other areas are really starting to crack down. So I know that you guys down in Oregon have gone through a lot of changes lately. And Seattle is really following suit in a lot of areas. It's it's um, a pretty strict, um, tenant-friendly environment right now, especially in Seattle, the core, those type of things. They're really trying to put in a lot of limitations on what landlords can do. Um, it's making the regulatory environment um, pretty hard to navigate, you know, all the changes that are coming down. Um, so we're constantly, at least from my company and other, other companies that I know, you know, we're going to seminars and dealing with uh, fair housing talks and things like that, just to try to stay abreast of all the new changes. And oftentimes they'll be rolling out changes, but they won't have a specific way that you're supposed to deal with those within your company. So they haven't given you guidelines. They just have rules. And that, so you're trying to develop best practices in real time, which can be difficult. So I would say definitely in Seattle, it's becoming very um, tenant forward. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're seeing that a lot in Portland, Devin. I mean, we have a new thing called the, the fair ordinance and renting, which is basically in the city of Portland, rehauling how we have to screen residents and then also changing the security deposit rules dramatically. Um, obviously, we don't have time to go into it, but uh, I'll send you some drafts if you ever want to get upset about reading something. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's unbelievable. It's like, you know, 20 pages of changes. That's the frustrating thing. It's as though some of these changes weren't thought out down to how we're actually going to be implemented and how you're supposed to be, you know, running a rental either as a, a small, you know, homeowner that has a second rental or as a property management company. So it makes it very difficult. And the ramifications of being charged with, you know, not being in compliance can be, be can be um, pretty rough on a property management company, you know, the amount of resources it takes to fight something like that. Um, or a single family, you know, homeowner. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, some of the penalties that in Portland they've imposed for not following certain things like relocation. I mean, those fines, if you look at actual damages, attorney's fees, you know, penalties, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it can be like $10,000 for, for paperwork mistakes. So it's pretty significant. Right. One um, of the things that we've kind of heard about, uh, at least on the West Coast, and certainly has been a topic here in Oregon, but wanted to find out if it's really true is, you know, are you not permitted to do criminal background checks in Seattle? And if, if that is true, how has that started to play out in the real world or has it yet? Yeah. So that's one thing that, um, was passed, I think in 2018, right around there, 2018, 2019, uh, where, yeah, we cannot check. We can't even ask if they have a criminal record, nor can we receive any information on their arrest record or criminal record. So it's just something that is not part of the screening process now. Um, and that has to do with the theory of desperate impact, or um, let's see, it has a desperate impact on other uh, protected classes. 
It's a disproportionate impact, I guess is what they call it, um, which is scared a lot of people because you know, you're putting tenants into oftentimes multifamily situations where there's other residents where now their actions you could be potentially liable for if you didn't do your due diligence when you're putting somebody in there. So that's one area that I haven't seen really explained or vetted out. If you put somebody into a multifamily situation and something bad happens, um, what type of liability does the landlord have in that situation? Especially now that you can't screen for any background in criminal history. So that's, that was a big one. And there, it caused a, a big ruckus in Seattle here when they passed that. Um, but you know, you just find other ways to do the best that you can and in finding, making sure you're getting quality tenants. So we have other screening techniques that we're using to kind of to make up for that, but that was a that was a big one for sure. Sometimes uh, policies like that uh, take a little bit of time to to play out. I mean, um, there's the fear factor, right? Where um, individuals might say, uh, "Well, I'm gonna I'm just gonna stop investing in Seattle. I'm gonna move my money into another market." Or um, you know, the, the landlord's argument there is, "I want to keep my tenants safe, and if I'm in control of the entire complex, and you don't allow me to." minimize potential exposure to liability and criminal uh, history or individuals with a criminal record, then that just puts me on the hook for that. Um, have, have you seen any implication yet of some of these policies, any modification in the way people are living or um, increased vacancy rates, increased default rates? It, it's probably a little bit too early, but uh, have you seen any indication of that? That's the argument from the other side. So organizations such as um, RHA, Rental Housing Authority, that are advocates on behalf of landlords, that's the argument that they're making, that by putting in all of any regulations, making it harder for a landlord to manage their properties effectively and reduce their risk is going to lead to them getting out of being a landlord and then thus having less um properties for people to rent. So that's really the the uh, argument that's been put out there. I don't think we have any a lot of statistics back yet, but I do know, you know, from just personal experience within my portfolio that I have some homeowners that are just choosing to sell. Whether that's exactly correlated to any one specific, you know, ordinance or law that was passed, I don't think so. It more has to do with the totality of it. The fact that it is getting so complicated, the fact that it is getting um, to where they feel as though they can't protect their their liabilities as, as good as they once could. I also know of several property management companies that just don't do property management in Seattle anymore. So they're just like, it's too hard to keep up. You have to do you know one set of procedures for properties outside the city and another set of procedures for properties in the city. And that's hard to do at scale you know, from a company perspective. So they've just pulled out of that market. I've seen that with a couple companies around here. Yeah. I mean, it definitely makes sense from a business perspective, um, on the property management side, because you're already taking on quite a bit of liability and it's a thankless job, right? The, right. the landlord's not happy that you can't screen the tenant and that you charge him to allow the tenant to just walk in. Right. And then, you know, you're taking on all the liability and you're taking the phone calls from the tenants and the adjacent tenants. So, um, it is quite a, 
uh, <laughs> quite a hornet's nest. Now, Oregon and California have both enacted statewide rent control laws. Do you see this happening in Washington? Well, it's currently illegal under the state constitution from, from what I understand. Um, but that's definitely the direction that um, they're pushing. A lot of legislators are pushing. So um, we have, you know, in just different organizations that we follow, such as NARPM and RHA, um, we have people up on the Hill, you know, getting that real-time information. And they're telling us that, yes, this is a direction that, that Washington wants to go. And it seems right now the approach that they're taking is, you know, death by a thousand cuts where they just keep cutting landlords' rights and what they're able to do so much that it equates effectively to a rent control situation, you know, by limiting amount of rent increases that you can do, by limiting the, the way that you can remove a tenant if you want to rehab the building or if you want to sell. Um, they're putting a lot of restrictions on all of that so it's it's making it you know in actuality be some type of rent control and then i think the next step is just trying to push for full rent control which is very scary for a lot of people because from what the research that we've seen it doesn't actually solve the problem and you know i'm all for solving the problem which is finding ways for there to be low income housing for people that need it i mean of course i think Everyone that's in real estate wants that. There's ways for that to be profitable for the landlord. There's ways for that to, to be very beneficial for the tenant. But it's just shown throughout history in the course of the United States, different areas where they've done rent control, that, that it has actually an adverse effect. Yeah, we, we had a very similar argument with different um, legislators. We did quite a bit of work um, in fighting our legislation down here on that policy prior to it passing in Oregon. And you know, technically it was against the state constitution as well, and they just pushed it through anyway. So, I mean, it's definitely an uphill battle. Death by a thousand cuts is definitely the policy. And, um, you know, one of the things that was in our bill that I think uh, is more detrimental on the single family side, which is a little bit more challenging because you have more people on the multifamily side with lobbyists and putting money toward uh, the battle. But on the single family side, they ended no cause terminations and they gave a few exceptions to that. But one of the things that we found this year um, in on the real estate sales for single family homes is that it's really challenging to sell a property with a tenant in place. And because they ended no cause terminations, uh, the market time has more than doubled and the num amount of concessions has tripled. And so that really creates a, a fairly significant problem because you lose a lot of your uh, buyer pool when you have to give a 90-day notice to a tenant and you have to sell the property with the tenant in place. You can't fix up the property prior. And then the, if the new uh, buyer wants to occupy the property, you have to give a 90-day notice to the tenant, which pushes out closing. It minimizes your ability, ability to negotiate. So that, that's something, you know, another aspect of it that doesn't really impact the multifamily guy because, you know, he's got 100 units. He doesn't want to terminate a tenant, right? But on the single family, you've got one house, you've got one tenant, and you can't get them out. Right. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's just just something to be aware of down there because you do real estate, or up there, I should say, because you do real estate and property management. That That's an aspect, I think, that wasn't really lobbied for by uh, the Metropolitan Association of Realtors here and probably should have been uh, much more, um, they should have been more attentive to that. It's one of these things of unintended consequences. Um, you know, the, I believe the legislators in, in both of our states 
you know, they, their heart's in the right place. They're trying to, there is a crisis that they're trying to solve for, but the way that we're going about it just seems to be um, not getting the desired result in a lot of cases. It seems to be there needs to be more dialogue between all the parties, you know, the landlords, the tenants, actually the people, you know, the property managers who have the experience that know why all these procedures that they have and the way that they screen and, you know, all of this stuff they've put in for a reason because of things that have happened, um, you know, in the course of them doing business. So I think if there was a, a better dialogue between all concerned parties, we could come up with, you know, some rules and regulations that would, would get the desired effect, you know. You know, Devin, it's, it's kind of interesting because, you know, for a long time, I kind of felt like a lot of these were kind of unintended consequences. And I felt like, you know, a lot of it was about having better dialogue. And I can't speak, obviously, to the, you know, the people who are running, you know, the state of Washington or Seattle or surrounding areas. But, you know, really in Oregon, um, they actually know about these consequences because we're telling them up front about these consequences. There's research that's been done on rent control. Uh, you know, Stanford released a study in December of 2019 that basically said it's not effective. Uh, and so they're very aware of these consequences and they're choosing not to uh, listen to them, number one. And number two, they're doing things strategically where, you know, when they have something open for discussion, they will limit the amount of time that people can speak. They will narrow who can speak down to just, you know, it being disproportionately weighted towards residents versus landlords. And so there's not really an equal voice. It, it really is something where what we've seen in our state is that the legislature and the city council has done everything they can to pass these rules one, because they don't really want to solve the hard problem. And two, they know that this is going to help get them reelected potentially, especially getting support from unions uh, that contribute a significant sum to a lot of these campaigns here in Oregon. And so, you know, it's, it's a little bit disheartening because we've seen people engage on a high level at the state legislative le level. Uh, I've personally done that. I've also testified before this Portland City Council um, you know, there, there's a lot of different ways people have gotten involved to try to kind of say, hey, you know, uh, this is a great conversation and there is a problem. Let's figure out how to solve it. Here's some ways we can do it. And they're just not even uh, at the table. So, you know, hopefully you're in a better situation than we are down here. But it's uh, it's a little bit unfortunate that it's not always about, uh, you know, unintended consequences and hearts in the right place. That's we're, we're starting to see that not be the case where we are, at least. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good point. And that's that sentiment's been echoed by other people. So this is not an area that I focus in, um, you know, dealing with uh, legislators or being a lot lobbying for cert for certain landlord, um, you know, uh, protections and things like that. But I do talk to to the people that are really engaged in that. And then unfortunately, they're saying a lot of the same things that you are, where it seems as though um, they just want to pass anything to look as to look like they're 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 trying to solve the issue um and i don't know exactly how to combat that it it seems you know that we that there would have to be a direct um impact on the people that were voting for those legislators you know so they they can see that oh by doing these policies actually this isn't good for my community and um you know, the people that it's supposed to affect, it's actually a bad thing. And so there's, there's something to that, you know, getting it to the actual people so they can see what in fact these policies have on their 
um, on their daily lives, I think. Yeah. And, you know, it's one of those things, unfortunately, you know, economics doesn't take sides necessarily when it comes to certain rules of supply and demand. And so we'll see it kind of play out and how things go. But with, you know, that kind of in mind, um, you know, if I'm an investor and I'm looking around, you know, the United States and I'm looking at places to invest, you know, why should I pick, you know, Seattle or the surrounding areas around Seattle? Like, what are you kind of telling your clients or, you know, what is your firm advising people on about, you know, what, what are the positives obviously of being in that marketplace? Cause every market has them. Right. Well, I think, you know, the reason that there people continue to invest in Seattle is because regardless of all, or despite all the new regulations is because it is such a hot market. You do have a lot of solid foundations here. You know, you have strong job growth, you have um, a good tenant pool, to pull from. You've had really strong appreciation um, for many, many years. So that's, that's, those are really strong drivers for investors. Um, Seattle core is really hot right now, and it has been for years and years um, just because of all the influx of people moving in, all the, the, the strong employers in the area. It's a little bit tough when you, when you are an individual investor because you're not going to see the numbers pencil out like you'd want them to in other markets. Um, it's from a cash right, flow cash perspective, flow, cap rate, all of those things. It's going to be very difficult. You could easily go into Seattle with 25% down and not cash flow, you know? And so for, for a savvy wow. investor, that just doesn't make any sense. Um, if you had a lot of money to park and you were making a more long-term um, appreciation game, then it makes sense. I could understand that because you know that Seattle is essentially following the same growth pattern as, say, a San, Fr a San Francisco. So you're saying, you know, mm -hmm. I'm not worried about the cash flow in the short term. I'm going to be holding on to this for a long yeah. time. I'm going to, I'm going to bet on principal pay down. I'm going to bet on appreciation. Um, but as you know, a lot of investors don't want to do that. They don't want appreciation to be part of their analysis when they're going into an investment. That's just, you know, sort of the icing on the cake, but the, the property itself has got to make sense. It's got to pencil out when you purchase it. So speaking of, um, kind of long-term, like where, where do you see things going over the next five years? I mean, over the next five years, that's a little bit tough for me to say. Um, but I, over the, just right, trend -wise, I mean, over I mean, the, the next year we're seeing, we're going to see a really strong, uh, we're expecting a really strong spring. Uh, we have really low inventory right now, so it's going to be, uh, a lot of multiple offer situations for buyers and things like that. Um, you know, I, we advise and when we invest, we don't, we don't do it in Seattle. We do it in outskirts because there's still a lot of places where you can see, um, advantageous cap rates and good cash flow. So those would be, you know, places like Tacoma is actually really, um, really hot right now and you can still get deals down there. You know, you're not that far out of Seattle, but yet it's a big, it's a big city. It also has some employers down there as well. So it's becoming a big draw. Um, so if you get down south, you can go into Auburn, Federal Way, places like that, um, where you can see where you can actually buy something with a reasonable amount down and get a good cash flow, good return on investment. People are also going, going so up north. I was just going to say Everett. So Everett's looking really good for people. It's another big city where... There's a lot of places of Everett that are in transition where I've, I actually just purchased mm -hmm. the property of fourplex up there. Um, 
and cool. it's doing really well. It's in, and you know, I could, I, I could make a cash flow right away. And what are we, you know, 20 miles outside of Seattle. So you still getting the benefit of that, those industries there. So you said that cap rates, you know, you get into places like Tacoma and things like that. I mean, are, how much better are they getting? I mean, what, what types of cap rates are you seeing in some of those like tertiary markets? I mean, you can get into the high sixes, sevens in certain areas. You see that up in, or, yeah, yeah, that's not bad. Yeah, I mean, for us, you know, you talk to other people around the country in there, uh, it's a little bit different story, but around here, that's really good. You know, in, in Seattle, you're looking threes, may, low fours, you know, so it's a big difference. Um, but yet you're still getting, like I mentioned, you're still getting all the, the benefit of the demand, people moving in that can't afford to live in the city. So, um, you know, places like Monroe is another another area where um, there's some multifamily there and you can get you can get good cap rates. I think I purchased one a couple of years back and it was, I think it was like a, a 6.9, 6.9, right around there. So. Okay. Yeah, that's solid. Hey, do you have any, um, you know, there's this kind of a big announcement. I think last spring, Amazon said they were relocating at least their oper- worldwide operations team uh, over to Bellevue by 2023. Um, or, you know, do you see any kind of people kind of following Amazon and starting to buy stuff over in Bellevue now? Or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, Bellevue's been hot forever, though. So, yes, Amazon, okay. Amazon will... <laughs> you know, add to that, but Bellevue is extremely expensive and has been for, for a while. Now. Got so it. you've got some, some big players already. Expedia is there and a few other, um, AT&T, uh, big, big employers there. And also Bellevue has really high uh, school rankings. So some of the highest in the nation for public schools. So that's been, that's a, so, um, we own some property in Bellevue as well, just because it's really easy to rent. Um, anyone with families, you know, they're coming from out of state, they go to Bellevue because they schools are extremely important. So that keeps the rents high. Are you seeing anything out east? I mean, I'm, I'm looking at uh, Tri-Cities, Spokane. I know that, you know, it's not in your specific market, but we're kind of looking, um, you know, at, at untapped areas. Are you seeing people expand out east at all? Yeah, I would say there's a lot of untapped areas. Um, the key to that is just finding the right ones, right? So the ones that are going to continue to grow that when when the economy slows down, aren't going to go the opposite direction. And that's, that's the risk that you're running in, you know, a lot of places in Eastern Washington, but they're a lot less expensive. Um, you can get much better, you know, much better numbers on your cap rates and cash flow there. You just want to make sure you're, you're in a place that has high enough, high enough demand so that you can keep those vacancy rates down. But yeah, there's a lot of cities. I haven't done a lot of that. You know, I'm still wrestling with the, the concept of not managing my own properties um, is one that I maybe need to get over. But, and I have some brokers in the office here that they're buying in Alabama, they're buying in all kinds of areas, um, which is, which is pretty cool. And I, I've been, you know, talking to them about their experiences and how they go about doing it. And, and they're getting great deals. Um, you know, they're playing a huge appreciation game. It's more for just cash flow. Um, but I think you could do that in a lot of areas of Eastern Washington, you know, Spokane, Spokane's a great place to invest. Um, it's just for me, when I don't know the area very well, I get a little more nervous um, and I kind of back burner it, but it's definitely something that, that I would encourage you know people to look into. You know, it's interesting you say that because a lot of the, the people that we have on the show and uh, a lot of my clients, you know, when I talk to a client and I'm the property manager or I'm the broker, 
Um, I'll say, oh, you know, don't worry about it. We'll take care of that. Think of, look at, look at it as a spreadsheet. This is an investment. Don't have an emotional attachment. Right. And then when I, uh, look at my own properties, I have an emotional attachment to it. Right. I think that we all do that even on investment properties. And it's kind of hard for us as, as investors to, to just get over that. I just bought my first out of, uh, so I have a, a property in Vancouver, Washington, but it's still accessible and easy, but I just bought a mobile home park in Wyoming and, for me, it's tough because I typically work on stabilization projects where I'll buy it, it needs some work, so I'll put a hundred, two hundred thousand into it, and then it'll cash flow really great and it's a wonderful property. But not being there to manage it, not being there to know the tenants, not being there, you know, I I had to hire someone to snowplow. <laughs> I'm not used to having to hire anyone to snowplow and I don't know any vendors there. So we've talked on a couple other episodes about that. But e- even in our own investment strategies, that's one of the things that we want to do on this show is help you bring people, have you help bring people to Seattle or the, you know, the surrounding areas, because um, it kind of gives them some perspective on that market. And so, you know, that's, that's one of the reasons that we're here. So it's good actually to hear you as a professional investor, professional property manager, professional realtor, say, you know, we, we know it's scary to kind of invest outside of your bubble, but look at all the opportunities right. there. And I think another thing about that is when at least from some su- successful investors that I know, they focus, you know, they, so they focus their efforts on a certain segment and really get to know that and really get proficient in that segment, whether that's, you know, commercial or it's multifamily within a certain area or whether it's, you know, investing in a certain type of property, but location's not as important. And so they know how to get management in place. They know how to come evaluate the properties you know, they have connections in those areas. Um, and I would just say, you know, making sure that you're focusing so you're not so dispersed where you don't get any traction. You have an idea of what you want to do and how you want to go about it, whether that be, you know, looking for those particular buildings that cash flow really well and you're not so worried about the areas. You've got your system set up so you can manage from afar. Or you can manage your management company from afar. It's totally doable and people do it all the time. So it's just determining how you what type of an investor you want to be and then really honing your skills in that particular segment or that area yeah yeah and that makes perfect sense i mean you know we're kind of in a similar situation out here in portland that you guys are in seattle although it's still quite a bit cheaper here um is just simply the fact that uh we have to play the appreciation game and so i've been doing a lot of research on putting together a fund here to go buy stuff in some of those you know markets outside and you know probably the potentially you know midwest and the south as well in addition to what what we're doing in you know on the west coast so i mean we're developing an apartment building here in portland um, because for an asset that size it, it makes sense to be here um, and even for certain appreciation plans but it's good to good to diversify one of the things that you were kind of touching on a little bit earlier that i want to uh, get to because i think it's important especially kind of where we are in the cycle is you know how did Seattle perform in the Great Recession? Do you think Seattle is insulated in any way from like major dramatic swings, right? Like, you know, cities like Las Vegas and Phoenix just got, you know, you know San Francisco, they got kind of kicked in the teeth to say, to say the least. Um, Portland was somewhat insulated from that. Like how did Seattle and kind of surrounding areas experience that, that, that recession? Yeah. And again, I'm not an, in, an expert in this exact area in terms of the statistics, but from what we saw, and what I read, we were insulated as well. So we didn't we didn't go down nearly as far, and it didn't last as long as a lot of areas like you're talking about with 
say Las Vegas, for example, areas of Florida, stuff like that. It wasn't even close to that. So, you know, a quick, a quick Google search would show you that Seattle was, did, did handle the recession much better. I mean, it was, it was tough for everybody regardless, but it bounced back faster and it wasn't as low. And that's just, I, I believe because of the strong industry that we have and the low, um, the great jobs that are around here, you know, that's what, that's what makes it so attractive for people is they know that, you know, you, Amazon's not going anywhere for a while and that's going to draw a lot of people and a lot of other companies into the area as well. So I saw that with, um, you know, it's not just the major players like Google, Amazon, but I had a property, a commercial property we were representing, um, that was by Google. And that thing went for a ton of money because people want, he wanted to bring his tech company just to be close to Google, right? And that type of thing. So you're getting a lot of these smaller startups, things like that starting to come in because this is kind of getting known as an area where there, where you could be successful in that. And you have big players in the market as well as smaller players. Well, yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And uh, I do want to just acknowledge some kudos on your, uh, on your ability to, to give disclaimers on uh, what you're an expert and not an expert. And I can tell your uh, law degree is paying off quite well um, in terms of, in terms of how that goes. Um, so no, that's great to have uh, some of that, you know, information about what what happened in, in in Seattle because you know that also if you're holding long term and you're thinking about appreciation, you know that can give you a lot of confidence. You know, honestly, I mean, Portland did pretty well uh, throughout that whole experience. So, um, but anyways, we are actually going to go to a quick break from our sponsor here. So thank you for joining us so far. We're going to be right back. Sleep Sound Property Management is a full-service, professional management company serving the Portland metro and Vancouver area. We give our clients back their most valuable asset, time. By delegating your property management, you'll be able to focus on what you do best while minimizing your liability and maximizing your return. Learn how we can help at sleepsoundpm.com. All right, so here, here we are back again with Devin Easterlin of SJA Property Management. Um, we're just talking about now some of the uh, legislative concerns that are going to be coming up on the horizon potentially. Um, you know, Devin, are you familiar with anything that is in the pipeline or in the works that you know investors should be paying attention to? I know sometimes, you know, in some markets, you know, an investor will be buying a property and not be aware of potentially pending reg- regulations or ideas that are, uh, you know, floating around out there that have a high probability of passing and uh, it can change their investment strategy. So maybe you could talk a little bit about things that maybe you see as potentially coming down the pipeline that investors should be aware of. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, especially things that are going to impact, you know, your investment performance over time, such as rent control, something like that and having good, a good resource or people that you trust in those areas to be able to report back that information in real time to you, I think is, is, is really important as an investor. Um, you know, there's a lot on the docket right now for potential uh, legislative concerns in the Seattle area and other cities that are following suit, following Seattle's lead. So, you know, the major one that we discussed a little bit earlier, rent control, that's one that everybody is, is really thinking about and from a landlord's standpoint, figuring out how we could combat or have some sort of situation that's not going to be too detrimental to landlords. Um, There's other eviction protection rules. 
um, that have been proposed. The city council proposed one the other day where it was you wouldn't couldn't evict someone during the winter months. So which I thought was <laughs> interesting. interesting. Yeah, yeah. And the way that they proposed it in the beginning was that it was for any reason. So that would be even non-payment of rent. I think they're wow. probably going to give some concessions on that, but that's that's the legislative environment that we're having in the city of Seattle, specifically dealing with the the city council. I mean, there's there's they're proud socialists, so they're really moving towards you know a situation where most of the housing is owned by you know potentially by the government. Um, so it's pretty interesting to watch that and to. Um, see how that's going to impact, you know, landlords over time. Yeah. I mean, the thing is too, that's, you know, somewhat frightening about that to a degree. And we've seen a similar trend. And I think, you know, you're starting to see these regulations pop up in places you've never even would ever consider like North Carolina, Georgia, right. Places that you would think be highly insulated from this. But to me, the thing that's most worrisome about that is, you know, it'd be one thing if, you know, these individuals wanted to provide housing and then sought a channel of maybe government funding to build housing. I'm not necessarily saying I'm for that or against it. Obviously, there's a lot of factors that go into that. However, what they were trying to do is essentially confiscate private property through regulatory reform um, because essentially they're shifting the burden of those expenses to the private sector and then basically trying to, you know, essentially what I would say is uh, cap the upside without capping the downside. Uh, and that doesn't really seem fair. And it's actually more concerning because most people who provide housing, a lot of them are small, small landlords. And so how, how is the general city responding to this? I mean, obviously people are voting for these city councilors in Seattle. I mean, do you think this is just a topic that's too nuanced for the general public to be engaged with? Or do you think there's just no political will? Yeah, I would, I would say, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. So the big, the big thing that people are really worried about is homelessness and affordability. And if you can tout that you are tackling those by whatever means, you, you know, you're going to get some votes, you're going to get some support. And getting into the weeds, just like anything, is difficult to figure out all the nuance and how this is what's how this is actually going to play out in real time and what are going to be the long-term consequences. You know, I think it's unrealistic to imagine that the general voter would have that knowledge, right? They're just seeing these these uh, people attempting to do something. And when things are billed as a crisis, like there's an affordability crisis, whether there's a homelessness crisis. And people are coming up with ideas regardless of, you know, how well they're going to work over the long term. That's seen as a positive by a lot of people. I can understand that. So yeah, it's a yeah. difficult thing to combat. So you kind of hit on the, uh, the word of the day here, which is affordability. And so can you maybe give us a sense of, you know, even what is the median price point there for a single family home kind of in whether it's Seattle or the immediate surrounding area? Can you give us a sense of really how expensive the city is? Yeah, just in terms for to, to buy a property? Yeah, just medium price home to buy a single family home. Hmm. I'd have to check. I would say single family home in Seattle, it's gotta be around eight hundred thousand. You know, yeah. somewhere so in that I don't that's that's probably pretty close. And then you're gonna see areas like where it's gonna go up a little bit, Bellevue, like you mentioned, Kirkland, Sammamish, um, Mercer Island. Those are all going to be even higher. And then it's going to start to get a little bit lower and more affordable when you go into, those are all in King County. 
And then when you go into Pierce and Snohomish County, Snohomish County being north, that's where you're going to see a lot better deals. So you're going to get up into Everett. That's going to be Marysville. That's going to be uh, places in um, Snohomish. And then Pierce County being south, you're going to get into areas like Kent, um, Tacoma, things like that, where you're going to see a lot better deals. Yeah. Well, I mean, I can tell you, I mean, if you're at even, you know, if you're around the 800 mark, I mean, you're basically nearly double what the median home price is in Portland. Um, so, I mean, you're definitely in the, in the Bay Area ballpark. I mean, maybe even less than, you know, obviously like San Francisco and things like that. But so where does that leave affordability for tenants and first time home buyers, in your opinion? It makes it very difficult. You know, I think that's why you see people starting to stretch and really add to their commute time so they can get to some place where they can where they can buy. It's a difficult thing for first time home buyers for sure. Um, you know, you do get favorable rates. You can come in with lower lower down, um, but oftentimes they're not being able to buy in the core. So I just just uh, just did a little quick research here. It looks like it's about seven forty one is what they're showing right now for the median home price, but um, in in Seattle, but. Yeah. So for what we're seeing, you know, for uh, first time home buyers, is there buying in the outskirts? Even if you come in with a good job, um, it's still very expensive. And, you know, you know, how much of how, how much of your percentage of your income are you willing to put towards your mortgage? So that makes it difficult. However, if you're savvy, you know, and you're a first time home buyer and you want to go out and buy, say, like a duplex or a fourplex or something like that and live in one of them, if you're willing to do that, well, then you can get you know FHA financing and get really good rates, and that can you can roll that into an investment performance, live there for a while, and then move to something else, which I've seen some people do, and I think that's a great way of going about it. That's a really good point. I'm actually going to uh, have my daughter listen to this podcast because I say the same thing to her, but maybe she'll listen to you. <laughs> I've got I, I've got a daughter that just graduated from college, came back, and it comes down to preferences, you know, for all of us. I think that to a certain extent individuals feel a sense of entitlement to live where they want to live and they want someone else to pay for it, right? I mean, whether that be through a subsidy or, or um, affordability, I think can be skewed uh, because people who want to want the lifestyle to live in the inner core, to be right up the street from restaurants, they don't want to put the work into it or have to commute to it, but they also can't afford that apartment, right? So they, they want to skip the commute and have someone else pay. And I think that that's one of the challenges. You know, we don't have to get too philosophical here but um you know for people looking at your market if they want the lifestyle of seattle um i think that's one of the driving forces to adjacent cities you know um, portland boise salt lake city phoenix uh because the affordability may be a little bit better and you have some of the same you know um, amenities that that community offers but where does Seattle fit when lining it up with other metropolitans that are growing, you know, such as Portland, Phoenix, and Boise from an investment perspective? I would say, you know, in terms, it just depends on how, what metrics you're following. You know, in terms of appreciation, I'd say we're in the top five. But if, you know, over time, right, mm -hmm. not like a one-year blip or something like that. But if you're trying to say, you know, what's going to get you your best cash on cash, well, then we're going to be lower, right? So it's more of... A, an appreciation play like we discussed. There are a few things that you can do. I mean, I think for investors in general, we talked about coming in, buying a duplex, buying a triplex, living in one, fixing it up, renting out the others. You get the, if it's under four units, you get that, you get those really good rates, you know, and you can come in with almost nothing down. Another thing that Seattle did, which actually is a benefit 
to investors is they um, allowed for more ADUs, so accessory dwelling units. So now you don't have to, they took the restriction off that you don't have to live in the property to have an ADU on the property. And you also don't have to have a designated off-street parking um, associated with that. So what that means is you can buy a single family house and put a unit in the basement or a tiny house in the back and rent out all those places and not have to live there. So that's something that is fairly new. And I think is going to, you're going to see sort of a cottage industry there to, you know, excuse the pun, but where people are actually doing that, where they're putting, they're putting tiny houses, they're putting small ADUs on the property, and then they're renting out maybe the basement, the upstairs and the ADU. And then you can start to see some really good cash flow. And then at the end, if you, you know, I don't know what your end game is there, but the land always has value. So that's a lot of what you're buying in these, in these really hot markets, like, you know, certain areas of Ballard, um, certain areas of Kirkland, where, you know, you say, well, how can a 1100 square foot house be 900,000? It's not the 1100 square foot house, it's the land, the land's worth 900,000 by itself, you know, the property is more of just a hindrance, something you got to get rid of. So, you know, if you're doing that, you're coming in, buying something in one of these good areas, finding a way to make a cash flow for a while, putting an ADU, uh, building out a basement, you know, unit. And then your play is, well, I know that land is always going to be extremely valuable. So in 10 years, I'm going to sell that land for you know, 1.6 million or whatever it might be. Yeah. Which certainly makes sense. So um, from a personal perspective now, what types of products are you investing in currently? And where do you see the opportunity in real estate investing? Is it in that area, outer lying areas? Are they small plexes? Is it new construction? What, what do you see as an opportunity in you know the Seattle metro area, but also you know uh, in adjacent areas there in Washington. Yeah, I mean from a personal standpoint, I always like to make my money when I purchase the property, and I also want it to be um, it to have some cash flow going along with that. I'm I'm not comfortable with just an appreciation game. I need it to be cash flowing to a certain degree. I know I'm not going to get as much cash flow as I would you know, in other areas, but I'm trading that for strong appreciation um, and good renter pool and all of that. So I'm looking and when, when I apply, you know, I have a basic formula that we use when we're evaluating a property. Um, and oftentimes that or most of the time, it doesn't work in Bellevue. It doesn't work in Kirkland. It doesn't work in areas of Seattle, but it might work in, say Everett, it might work in Monroe, it might work in Bothell, certain areas like that. And so I want to see, and oftentimes that will be multifamily. We found, I think most of the people listening in who are investing that multifamily cash flow is a little better than single family. Um, single family is a lot simpler. It's, it's fairly easy to manage that type of thing, but I'm getting most of my best returns with small multifamily. And that would be anything from a duplex up to you know, maybe an eight plex, something like that. We're seeing that as well. I mean, many of my clients um, are, especially after the regulation, because the, the regulation, uh, not just the caps on rents, but the inability to terminate a tenant, they're waiting for an opportunity when the tenant terminates themselves and they move on. My clients are saying, okay, how do I turn this uh, via 1031 exchange or just, you know, modifying my uh, overall uh, investment structure into something that cash flows better? And the question always comes up, well, with all this regulation, should I continue to invest in this market or should I move someplace else? 
And a bulk of the time, and this is probably true in, in Seattle, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, if you already owned property here and you've you've uh, experienced some of that appreciation and increased value, you can roll those funds into another property that's in the same market because you're making a lateral move and it still makes sense. But the barrier of entry is really tough. And, you know, and that's why people start out with a single family home, right? Because it's a little bit and they can live in it. And then you roll that money into something else and you keep building it. But we're not seeing a lot of new people, new investors investing in single family homes. The market itself in Portland lost 100 single family rental units between 2017 and uh, the beginning of 2019. So uh, I think I pulled the numbers in March, I'm sorry, in the fall of 2017 and again in March of 19, which is really when all that legislation went into effect. And I'll tell you from personal perspective, a lot of the clients that we have that have single family homes as investments are selling and it's being replaced by people who are buying and not as an investment property. And so that's the opposite of what the legislation really is designed to do, which is increase housing, right? I mean, they, they still have some other layers that they're working on, such as adding the ADUs and density. But, um, you know, it certainly makes sense to kind of look at that uh, if you're an investor and say, okay, does it make sense to go single family or should I look at multifamily, right? Four doors, one roof, that makes sense. So that, that may very well be happening where you are as well. So it, it's good to know that, you know, there are other products. Um, and as you mentioned, everyone has some type of comfort level whether it be a commercial property or a mobile home park or multifamily or, you know, uh, even with markets, some people want to be in the inner core because they think that that's going to fare better in a recession because people are still going to want the jobs that are in town. And even if you have a little bit of vacancy, right. you have more people, more yeah, tenants to choose from, you right? Know, you make some really good points there. And if you're, you know, new to investing, then there's a lot of ways you can do it. You just want to start. So you, like you mentioned, buying a single family property, there's nothing wrong with that. That's a, that's a great way to start. And when I, um, you know, first, first got into investing, that's what I did. So we bought these single family homes and we managed them for a while. Uh, partner uh, actually lived in a couple of them. So it worked out really great. And then when the market got better, we sold those. We 1031 exchanged, which as a lot of your listeners will know, is just essentially not having to pay tax your capital gains on the property. Now you roll that into something else. And that's how we then roll those into a couple multifamily properties was by doing that. So it's a good way to start and it's a low, you know, lower risk. You don't have to be as quite as sophisticated uh, going into those. It's, it's fairly easy to figure out what one single family home is going to rent for, how much it's worth. The finances is, is pretty simple as well. And you have a lot of options with it. It's fairly liquid. You can sell it, you can move into it. You can do a lot of other things that maybe a multifamily wouldn't, wouldn't allow you to do as easily. So that's a, that's a great way to start and then use that as a catalyst to, to jump, jump into something with maybe a little better returns. Well, I mean, you know, one of the biggest fears uh, investors have, um, you know, obviously outside of losing their money um, is not knowing an area. And you kind of touched on that earlier about why you're not, you know, really investing outside of your kind of sandbox there. Um, you know, if somebody, you know, is wanting to move into an unknown market that's, you know, 
you know, something where they do lack that knowledge, that expertise. Um, and if they, they're interested in the Seattle area because they believe in the appreciation play, they, they like the lifestyle, they like the stability of, of that market. Um, you know, do you offer services in addition to just management? Um, I mean, do you have things like other resources like for getting maintenance done and for landscaping and other vendors and so mm-hmm. forth? Yeah, and I think um, just like I we had discussed a little bit earlier, if that's where an area that you want to focus on and you want to say, hey, I'm going to look for properties that are going to meet certain metrics and I don't care if they're not close to me or if they're going to be managed from afar, well, you can set up systems so that you have your checklist in place of what you go through to make sure it's a good, safe investment for you. You know, you have a quality management company, you understand the regulations of that particular city, or you have a resource that can give you that information. You've done the due diligence through your procedure so that you can invest there in confidence. You know, here at our company, we have a lot of quality brokers that deal with investors. So that's the first step. They can help you figure out you know, what areas are hot markets would have strong rents historically, that type of thing. And then, of course, on the property management side, you know, been doing this for over 10 years. So we have a strong pool of trusted vendors. Um, we have ins- we have all the resources necessary to make sure you're protected in terms of referrals for quality insurance, making sure you have that. We put all the um, procedures in place to lower liability in certain areas so we can we can easily take over a lot of the burden of, of, you know, the risks that you might find by coming into a market, not knowing it because we do operate in that market. And I think that would be the same with a lot of areas. You can, you can very quickly um, assess the value, how well the property management company is run, what they have done, how long they've done it and that they should be able to provide you with a, it could be a great resource for you. And then you couple that with your other procedures of things that you go through when investing outside of your core market. Um, I think it'd be really successful. Great, great. No, that's wonderful. So, you know, obviously we've uh, covered a lot of content so far. Um, we're about to transition to another part of the segment. But before we do, um, do you have any other insights for Seattle that we haven't talked about and that you think would be valuable for uh, our audience? Like any investment or any market, you have to figure out what the strengths are, see if those meet your long-term goals. Um, I think Seattle is great for long-term investing um, rather than flips or, uh, you know, potentially um, things where you're wanting to get out of it soon. You know, I think Seattle has a, offers a lot of really, it's advantageous for the person that wants to um, diversify, like you mentioned before. So you're not looking necessarily for strong cash return, but you're trying to diversify your portfolio of, of investing. I think there's a lot of a, a lot of benefits to doing it in, in a strong area like like this. And then if you want to, you know, um, Washington in itself in that area, there's a lot of cities and markets that where you're getting the benefit of being close to um, to Seattle and the east side without having to pay those prices. So for the for the savvy investors, there's a lot of deals to be had where you um, can get more of that cash return. Cool, cool, great. Well, we are going to now with that transfer to our other segment of the show where we're going to get a little bit more personal, Devin. We want to learn a little bit more about you here. So Matt's going to kind of open that up with one of his uh, favorite questions here. So I uh, hope you enjoy these questions as much as we do. Well, uh, obviously a little less professional, but um, 
Is there an aha moment that you've had in the past year that's changed how you approach some type of your career, your investment strategies, or maybe your, even your personal life? Yeah, let me think about that. So there's a, there's a few things that have really helped me over the past year, couple of years, um, in being more effective in what I do. Um, one of those, I read a great book um, that was Atomic Habits. Um, and some of your listeners might have read that, but it talks about habit stacking. And so just the idea that if you have long-term goals, um, long-term things that you want to get accomplished, oftentimes the roadmap to doing that is just establishing good habits and then stacking upon those habits. And that consistency over time really is powerful. So that was a great book. I read that about a year ago, and I've started to implement uh, a lot of the concepts in that book and have helped me a ton. Um, so that's that's one thing that just comes to mind. Um, another thing that has helped me personally is just the organization of how I go about um, my day and my weeks and how those my goals and the things that I want to accomplish, I've broken those down into smaller steps, um, which has been, been really beneficial. I follow the um, getting things done so that book is another great book, and I've incorporated um, OneNote into that. So I have my action lists um, that I want to get done in OneNote. I can I can add to those whenever I'm you know wherever I have wherever I am. If I come up with an idea or things that I need to get done, I can add those to to my action steps. And then the night before, I can go through all those lists and my priorities, and then put together my my day. Um, based on the highest priority items first. So nice. At, yeah. So at the end of the day, you know, or even if the day goes to heck, you know, at noon, I've already hit the most important things that I want to get done that day. And that's been really great. So that, you know, cause life happens, kids happen, work happens. So that's um, something that's been really powerful for me is getting the most important things done early in the day. It's been really beneficial. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know there's kind of a kind of philosophy of like win by noon. I know that like Tim Ferriss and Gary Keller kind of subscribe to those concepts. I had not heard of that book, Atomic Habits, but that sounds great. I'm definitely going to put that on the list here. So with that, I mean, can you tell us about an important ritual you have and do every day? Yeah. So I think the one that I just touched on briefly has been the most powerful one, and that's planning my, my day uh, in advance. So the night before. So that's when you're clear headed, you have time. And it actually takes a little bit longer than I thought it would, but I've been doing it for a couple of years now. But it then when you wake up, you have your roadmap for the day. You know when your meetings are. You know what the most important things are. And it's you're not coming to work and allowing work to dictate your day, your inbox to dictate your day. You've already have a plan that you can just then try to execute on. So that's that's a ritual that I've been doing for a while that I think has worked really well for me. How do you measure success? Well, that's one that I, you know, as a as an entrepreneur and and um, that I think about quite often um, because success is different for each person. So it's very hard to say that this person or the other is successful because you don't know what their goals are. You don't know what's important to them. Um, I measure success by you know first establishing my long term priorities, whatever those may be, and then how effective I am at moving towards those. So, and I think it's very individualistic, you know, it's very individual to the person, specific to the person, I should say. 
So I try to say, am I living within my priorities? What's most important to me? And I have those essentially ranked in order. And, and I try to build my, my days, which add up to my weeks, which add up to my years in furtherance of those priorities. And when I'm able to do that, you know, I feel successful. Nice. Uh, if you could have dinner with one person, dead or alive, who would it be? Uh, maybe Winston Churchill uh, just comes to mind. He seems like a really interesting guy. Went through some really, uh, obviously, hard, had to make some really difficult decisions and um, had a had a big personality. I think it'd be fun to have, have lunch with him for sure. If you had to choose whiskey or wine, what would it be? Mm. So that's difficult. So I'm... My wife is really into wine, and we live in Woodenville, which is, um, I'm starting to realize it's not a hidden secret anymore. A lot of people, uh, we have um, some guest speakers coming into our NARPM uh, convention, and they're talking about wanting to go visit Woodenville, and that's, and I live in, you know, basically downtown Woodenville, right above all the wineries, so we're, we're into that, um, and there's some good ones out there. I'm also, I would say, I would probably choose scotch. So I got into scotch a few years ago and I uh, haven't gotten into whiskeys as much. However, I do have a, you know, I, I enjoy a good whiskey, but I, I would say scotch over wine at this point. But it's kind of situ- situational dependent. You know, you can't, you don't know who you're with and what kind of what kind of thing you're up to. But yeah, that's where I'll go. Yeah, definitely. Well, you know, um, one, that's a good choice. Uh, I, you know, I don't want to burst your bubble publicly, but scotch is whiskey. So like basically whiskey covers bourbon, rye, scotch, all those things. Um, so uh, the whiskey looks like it's coming out ahead. I didn't know you were so close to Woodenville because um, there's some great bourbon and rye that come out of there. Actually, there's uh, a distillery up there that's pretty solid. Um, you've been hiding that from me. So now I have a reason to come up and yeah, visit you. Yeah, you're talking about Woodenville whiskey. Yep, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, their bourbon is really good. Uh, and Nick, I am aware that scotch is whiskey, but scotch can only <laughs> be called scotch if it's from Scotland. Well, you know, Devin, we want to thank you for coming in and spending some time with us today. Um, how can our audience get a hold of you or view your information? Sure. So, um, you know, they're, they're, if they have any questions just on investing in general or anything like that, um, I'm happy just to chat with them. If they're interested in property management services, they can just head over to our website, which is just sjapm.com. And there we can look at all the properties we that we currently have available for rent just to get an idea of where we manage. We manage everything. Um, basically, I would say the east side in Seattle. So that would just be Seattle, Kirkland, Redmond, Bellevue, Woodenville, Sammamish. Um, and we try to stay really focused on that. And then on the, uh, if they're looking to buy properties, Sterling Johnston Real Estate, again, they can, they can reach out to me personally. I can, what I do for a lot of my friends, because I don't actually represent um, buyers and sellers anymore, just given my time constraints. Uh, but we do have about 100 brokers. So I have some good friends just recently reach out to me and say, hey, this is where I'm looking to buy. This is the type of people I get along with. And then I just go through our roster and find a couple of good um, agents that, that specialize in those areas and they, they interview them and that's worked out really well. Great. Great. 
Well, uh, yeah, we want to just you know thank you again for joining us. Um, you know, if you find this show valuable, we have two favors to ask. Uh, the first is please subscribe to our podcast. The second, would you give us a review? The more subscribers, the more reviews we have, the better the show and the better the guests. So until next time, invest in the West. Thank you.